Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice and certainly encourage all of you to practice good social distancing to help limit the spread of COVID. Today, we have a special episode produced with our colleagues in ECRI's Partnership for Health IT Patient Safety. The partnership works together with its stakeholders to look at, among other things, opportunities for using technology to enhance patient safety. And that goal is the focus of one of the partnership's current work groups, using technology to provide better alerts that are not burdensome for providers or the source of alert fatigue. Our guests today are the two co-chairs of that work group. To get us started, I'll ask them to introduce themselves. My name is John McGreevy. I'm a general internist by training and an associate professor of clinical medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where I care for patients as a hospitalist. I'm also an associate CMIO at the University of Pennsylvania Health System, where I provide strategic and operational leadership for a variety of clinical informatics initiatives, including EHR implementation and development, oversight of clinical decision support activities, and governance. And I'm Adam Wright, Director of the Vanderbilt Clinical Informatics Center and Professor of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt. Part of my job here is to lead our decision support team and also conduct research on clinical decision support. And I've seen over the years the incredible power of decision support to improve quality, but also its potential to be burdensome. And so I'm excited to be on this group, uh, thinking about how we can make decision support work as well as it possibly can. So that's actually a great starting point. I think you mentioned how these decision support systems sometimes can bring burdens with them. And I wonder if we can just start by defining that burden. What is that burden that providers face um, in, say, order entry systems and other systems? Yeah, absolutely. So when a provider is using an electronic health record, they're trying to accomplish a task, whether that task is reviewing lab results, writing a note, or in uh, many cases, placing orders. And so they have a mental model of what they're going to do, the orders they're going to place, the steps they're going to go through. And uh, that model may be perfect, or it may contain some opportunities for improvement or even errors. And so uh, we have a responsibility as decision support practitioners to sort of respect uh, that flow, but uh, to interrupt it when we need to, to seek clarification or uh, point out a possible risk or opportunity to, to improve the plan. And uh, when we do that at the right time in the right way, when we're accurate, people appreciate that. You know, they don't want to uh, give the wrong dose of a medicine or accidentally order something a patient is allergic to. But if we do it at the wrong time, or if we give uh, inaccurate advice or based on out-of-date information, we can really sort of interrupt the flow and frustrate the providers. And it really sort of harms our credibility. After we've given one incorrect alert or one incorrect suggestion, providers are less likely to take the next one we give uh, seriously, even if it's right. And so, you know, I hear the phrase a lot, um, alert fatigue. And, and I, I think that's sort of part of a piece of what you're describing, right? This idea that there's just so many alerts um, that that can, you know, create its own kind of burden, even if they're all accurate. Um, do we see that with regard, I, I've talked about it on this podcast with regard to say, you know, physiologic monitors um, and the alarm fatigue that goes with that, but this is kind of an alert fatigue. Is that a piece of what we see with that burden? 
Yeah, exactly. So if you imagine, you know, an alarm going off all the time, whether that's a physiologic alarm or it's the alarm at the door of a department store that goes off when somebody leaves with a potentially unpaid for merchandise, uh, you know, it, ideally it's supposed to sort of snap you out of what you're doing and, and draw your attention. But if you hear it all day long, you kind of drown and it drowns out. You don't hear it anymore and you may not take it seriously. You may have discovered the last 10 times it went off there was nothing to do, so you assume the 11th time that it went off that, that there's nothing to do. So exactly, this is a kind of alert fatigue or alarm fatigue, and we see it in many places besides decision support. And I'd add to that that you know, nationally, we know that for the most part, providers heed the guidance of alerts and electronic health records fewer than one out of every 10 times. So put another way, that means that healthcare organizations need to show 10 or more alerts to get clinicians to follow the alert recommendations just a single time. So a lot of these alerts, uh, be, you know, providers become numb to them in this condition of alert fatigue. And we recognize that many, many of these alerts are overridden. And I would imagine that there's a real patient safety impact of that fatigue. Exactly. I have a five-year-old son and we talk a lot about the boy who cried wolf. And that's sort of <laughs> what's happening here. You know, every, uh, you know, of those nine alerts that they override, maybe eight of them were uh, wrong alerts that they should have overridden. But the risk is that one of them was something important that they've just started to uh, become numb to due to hearing all of these kind of false alarms. And so that missed alarm or missed alert is a missed opportunity to keep our patients safer. And so we really want to avoid that whenever we can. Is there also a a staff safety component to this in the sense that I, I understand, you know, nobody's going to be literally physically hurt by an alert or, or, or failing to click on alert. But does that, does that burden ever um, start to increase to the point where it, it, it transitions from burden to burnout? Absolutely. Uh, I would say that there's, there's good evidence for that. And uh, in one study of primary care physicians, for example, the median number of alerts that those primary care doctors received in a day was 63. So you can imagine in a 10 hour day, that's about one alert firing to that provider every 10 minutes. And in that same study, they found that almost 70% of the primary care doctors said that the number of alerts was more than they could effectively manage. So, so while alerts are not the full story about what is driving clinician burnout and, and impairing clinician wellness, I think that they are definitely a, an important component. Yeah, they're clearly not helping the situation <laughs> in, in that regard. Um, I wonder if you could, maybe each, maybe we'll, we'll start with you, Dr. McGree, but I wonder if you could give some examples of, you know, where you've seen this play out in, in your careers, either, you know, as a provider or working with providers. And, you know, maybe it didn't get to the point where you were ready to toss the computer out the window, but I don't know, maybe it did. Maybe, <laughs> I wonder if you could share some of those examples. Sure. Well, absolutely. As, as someone who practices and, and takes care of patients, I, I have the opportunity, I guess I would say, to see these alerts firsthand and to experience what they're really like in, in the midst of a clinical workflow. And one of the alerts that comes to mind is an alert that we have in our system, and I'm sure many health systems have such an alert, but it's an alert to remind a clinician to place an admission order for a patient, and it happens to fire as soon as I open the chart for a patient. So before I've even had a chance to open the chart, to learn about this patient, to place some basic orders for the patient, I'm being told that I'm deficient because I haven't yet placed an admission order. So that's an example to Adam's point earlier about alerts firing at the right time or sometimes the wrong time, where the alert fires prematurely 
and doesn't give the clinician the chance to do the right thing, which I think is really important in terms of the placement and the timing of these types of alerts. Yeah, and I'll give another example. So we have a couple of alerts uh, that are often work well and are, are well-intentioned. One to counsel patients who are smoking uh, to, to quit smoking or cut back, and one to counsel patients uh, who are overweight to take consider uh, their weight loss options. And we eventually got some feedback from our anesthesiologists that those alerts were actually firing during operations to the anesthesiologist while the patient was unconscious, which is not necessarily the most opportune time to do smoking cessation or, or weight loss counseling. And so it was a well-designed alert. It was just not quite targeted in the right way. The person who built it didn't think of that uh, particular eventuality when they put it in place. And so uh, by listening to the users, we were able to say, well, that doesn't seem like right at all. And quickly sort of suppress that in the OR setting. But uh, you have to imagine that is against the backdrop potentially of some alerts about, you know, a precipitous drop in blood pressure or the need to check the patient's blood glucose or ensure the patient's safe positioning during an operation. And so we've wasted a little bit of our credibility and a little bit of the doctor's attention by giving them that clearly spurious alert. Mm -hmm. Well, and it gets to your point earlier about it's, it's not enough for the alert to be accurate, it has to be timely as well. Yeah. Uh, and you know it's funny. I think it's it's easy for me to use as a as a you know a non clinician and, and somebody who's not you know deeply embedded in the daily use of an EHR. I often kind of shorthand these alerts and think of them about order entry, whether, particularly about you know medication order entry or I guess lab order entry. But you know you're making me think there are a lot of different sources of these alerts, and that's even setting aside I guess the you know the physiological alarms that we might get. During particularly hospital care, so I wonder if, if you could sort of run off maybe some other examples of the kinds of systems that might uh, generate these alerts. Well, I think even within the EHR, as you point out, Paul, there are alerts that are interruptive that will stop you in your tracks in terms of a clinical task that you're aiming to perform, um, and then there are alerts that are not interruptive that might hide in a certain section of the electronic health record that ask for your attention or, or hope that you pay attention to them at some point, but they won't necessarily um, interrupt your clinical workflow. And then I, in addition to that, I'd say that there are alerts, so to speak, that are in another part of the electronic health record, that is the in-basket or in-box section of many electronic health records where there are messages for clinicians to respond to. They could be clinical decision support, or they could be, I'm uh, sorry, uh, clinical documentation improvement queries uh, that need your attention. They could be results about patients. They could be telephone messages. So those are another type of alert that um, or message that clinicians experience, maybe not as interruptive as some of the alerts that we know about, but still something that, that takes attention from the clinicians. Yeah, the EHR that John and I both use uh, has several dozen uh, different triggers that can ca cause alerts to show up, and not all decision support is even alerts. I'll, I'll give you an example of, of something that we worked on recently, which was looking at the ordering of telemetry. So this is kind of remote cardiac monitoring for patients in our hospital. Did some work with David Rubens, uh, an internal medicine colleague of mine, and uh, we discovered that we were ordering telemetry way too often, and that's because our admission order set, the, the tool that we use to place admission orders, had that checked by default. And so we made a simple change. We switched it from being checked by default to not being checked by default and saw more than 50% drop in the use of, of telemetry with no harm to our patients. And so uh, it really struck me that 
it's not just the alerts that are sort of, you know, being ignored or overlooked uh, because of their, their volume. Every kind of decision support has, has this capability. So, you know, you, you're describing what sounds to me like a really meaningful and, and impactful kind of problem. What kind of approaches have been taken in the past to try to deal with this and, and how effective have they been? So I think that people have been aware of this problem of alert fatigue for a while. And so uh, we have, you know, things like committees and governance, you know, we vote on which alerts to uh, build into the system, we prioritize them. And I think all of those are, are sort of well-meaning and certainly have, have uh, contributed to the reduction of, of ineffective alerts. But increasingly, there's a real emphasis on using data. So every time we put an alert out, we have the ability to see how often is it firing, who is it firing to, what are the users doing with it? Are they taking the action that we want them to from the alert? Or have they already taken the action for, from another place? So I think increasingly we're seeing that uh, using data about the alerts uh, is uh, one of the most effective ways to both discover alert fatigue, uh, you know, situations where providers are getting numerous alerts in a short period of time, uh, and then also figure out whether the changes we make uh, cause improvement. Do people pay more attention to good alerts after we take out some of the noisier alerts? So I've been really impressed lately with uh, the power of using data in this. I agree. I think that's critically important to, to use data to try to inform an organization's strategy with regard to alerts. You know, I'd say that historically there was sort of an ad hoc approach. If someone raised their hand or mentioned that they weren't happy with an alert, that alert might get some attention for a little bit and then uh, things would settle down and go back to a steady state. But I think more organizations are trying to be proactive now in terms of thinking carefully about their alerting systems and figuring out ways that they can refine them when necessary and, and hopefully optimize them as well. So we mentioned at the outset that the two of you are co-chairing this work group with the Partnership for Health IT Patient Safety to you know, address this very problem, the, to reduce this burden of alerts and to make the alerts that we do have more effective. So uh, can you give a quick overview of how the work group is approaching this problem and, and how it will be um, maybe different from efforts that have come before it or, or incorporate what we've learned from past efforts? Yeah, well, I'm really excited to be part of this work group. And I, I think it's, it's notable because it brings together stakeholders from a variety of places. We, we have clinicians, we have researchers, uh, people who are knowledge vendors or representing knowledge vendors, EHR vendors, pharmacists. And so we have really aggregated or ECRI has aggregated a great team of individuals who have expertise in this area. And as Adam said on one of our recent calls, this is really a, a partnership, a, a team sport to try to do better in this field of alert management. And I think that's true. And so I think what we're trying to do is to build on the great work that's been done already. And, and certainly Adam has led a lot, lot of that work um, and, and to try to build on that and, and pull together these stakeholders to move us forward to a state where um, you know, we can give actionable recommendations to healthcare organizations and vendors and other stakeholders to really enable those groups to implement alerts in a better way, in a way that's more effective for patients in terms of improving patient safety, and also more effective in terms of promoting clinician wellness. There are some you know, measures like firing rate of an alert or acceptance rate that I think we all use 
casually, but it turns out that we were all defining them in slightly different ways. You know, imagine a situation where an alert shows up three times and then I accept it the third time. You know, how should I count that? Did, you know, is that three firings of the alert, one firing, were they all accepted? Just the last one was accepted. And so uh, as people use different definitions, they get wildly different numbers, which makes benchmarking and comparing and understanding each other really hard. And so I think that's one of the special things about this group has been the chance to sort of all share how we're measuring things and how we can try to standardize those things so that we're all uh, talking about the same thing. And, you know, one of the things that I always appreciate about the way the, that the partnership work groups approach what they're doing is, you know, incorporating this um, uh, literature review and evidence analysis piece to it. And that it helps, I think, bring together, it, it brings together the stakeholders that, um, you know, that you all mentioned so that they're all working from the same playbook. It gets to that definitional issue that you were just describing, Adam. Um, but it also, I think, really uh, the thing I've always liked, at least, is that it really lends a solid foundation of here's what we know, here's uh, about the problem we're trying to answer, and here's where we can contribute something new. I always liked that as an aspect of the partnership work groups. I like it too. And I'll say, you know, as an academic, right, you know, a lot of my work is in papers, but it's amazing to see our vendor partners and, and other health system partners, people are doing great work that I had never seen before. And so bringing this group of people together has been really, really informative to me. You know, you, you mentioned um, earlier, Adam, that that you know you and and Dr. McGreevy, you're you know you're in two different health systems, but you're using the same EHR, and you know that makes me think that um, there are obviously a wide variety of systems, and then different um, implementations of those systems, even if you've got the same vendor, all across the country. So as we start to think about you know developing and uh, making action recommendations and then implementation recommendations for that. How much of a consideration is it to make sure that they'll work for not just one system or one vendor, but to make sure that they'll have, you know, a broader application? I think that's a great point. So John and I both use Epic, uh, but uh, we're lucky on the partnership to have representatives from many different vendors and also from a clinical content vendor. So these are people that sell medication knowledge bases or third-party tools for analyzing alerts and understanding how well your decision support is working. And I think that what we're finding is that uh, the core of the measures is similar. You know, we all have ideas of an alert that fires and then what action do you take from the alert and what action do you take in the few hours after the alert fires. So I think the clinical workflows are similar enough that we can generate some universal measures that should work across all of the vendors. We are finding, of course, that the ways alerts are triggered and what they're called and, you know, uh, you know, there's interruptive and non-interruptive alerts, but there's really a continuum between those two uh, differ some. So I think the key will be having some uh, kind of universal concepts that can be implemented consistently and then allowing space for uh, uh, specific use cases, specific vendors, and specific uh, healthcare provider organizations to kind of customize the measurement approach to make sure that they're measuring what they want to be measuring. You know, that variation point, Paul, is one that, that calls to mind a, a paper that Adam and, and others wrote in 2017, looking at high priority drug-drug interaction alerts. And, you know, the, there were uh, 19 different systems investigated in that study. And the good news is that 69% of those high priority drug-drug interaction pairs produced alerts. So people were using those alerts that have been designated as ones that organizations should use. But the bad news was that no two systems had the same exact alerting configuration. 
even when using the same vendor. So I think it, it just spotlights the opportunity, as you called out, that there are so many EHRs and so many configurations of EHRs out there. I think it's a real balance in terms of how much guidance can we propose or, or offer that's actionable and, and deployable and, and consistent across healthcare organizations. And contrasting that or, or balancing that with how much local variation should be uh, permitted as well. So I always like to wrap up the podcast with something that listeners can do today. Um, obviously, the work group is going to develop its recommendations and its implementation guidance, but I'm sure that you know in every organization, there's something that, um, whether it's CIOs or people in similar roles, can do to start to get a handle on this issue. So I'm wondering if you could each give an example of something. If I'm, you know, again, whether I'm I'm a, a physician, whether I'm a, overseeing the health IT safety program, what's like a first step? What's something somebody could do this afternoon after they put down the podcast and start start the process of getting a handle on on alert fatigue in their organization? Uh, you know, I think one of the first things you can do is is just ask for data. Um, and, and try to look at the data that Adam referenced in the beginning about what are the alerts that your organization has, to whom are they firing, when do they fire. If you can access that, I think that can be really illuminating in terms of trying to understand the profile of your organization with regard to alerting. So I think that's a first step, and that may yield some interesting findings that, that um, produce other steps in terms of what your organization may choose to do. Uh, whether that's to create an alert management program or something else. So I agree with John, and I'll offer uh, one thing. If that's step 1A, I think step 1B is improving your systems for getting feedback from end users. And so one of the things that we've done here, and, and others have done too, is add a few icons to the corner of every alert, a little smiley face, a medium face, and a sad face. And so users can click on those icons. They can type comments. Uh, if they type a comment, it emails me right away. I make it a point to get back to them in the next couple of hours and uh, tell them that I got their feedback, tell them what I understood, uh, if I was able to make any changes to the alert. And uh, you'd be amazed at how much the users want to tell you about the alerts. And uh, Many of them have had frustrations opening help desk tickets or feeling like no one was listening to them. So having a direct channel from your clinical users to your decision support team is really, really useful. And if you want to kick that up a notch, you can also sort of be proactive about it. So I uh, took all of our alerts and I emailed the top five recipients of each alert and just said, do you remember getting this alert? Does it help you? Do you have any suggestions to change it? And there's a whole bunch of people that were really willing to invest in that conversation, even though they, they had never provided proactive feedback. We discovered we had alerts that uh, referenced programs that didn't exist anymore or that uh, duplicated you know, a workflow that was being done another way. And so we were able to turn a bunch of alerts off based on that feedback. So I agree with John, uh, looking at your existing data is first, but I think uh, creating channels to hear from your users uh, is, is, uh, goes right along with that. Well, wow. and what's encouraging to me though, from what you just said is, you know, when you ask for that feedback, people are willing to give it. So they see the value in the idea of an alert. It's just the execution that needs improvement. So that's, that to me is very encouraging. 
Yeah, I mean, they're using the system all day. This is a meaningful thing to them. And many of them said like, wow, no one has ever asked me before. Like, I didn't know that my opinion mattered to you. And I, some of you said, I didn't know that there was a human on the other end of this. You know, I'm sorry that I swore at you in the comment. And so uh, it's amazing how much you can connect with the users. And some of those users turn into friends down the road. You know, they send you ideas for new decision support. They notice something's a little off in the system and give you feedback. It's really an incredible way to make, uh, make relationships with your users. So we're rec we're recording this podcast in mid July, right? Right as uh, COVID rates are starting to really rapidly increase in different parts of the country, and it's and it's highlighting, um, you know, a lot of the struggles that that healthcare providers, in, whether they're in you know small practices, in aging services organizations, or in rural hospitals, there's a lot of financial struggle going on, and and that makes me think that you know, not every health system is going to be a large academic system that has the resources to create, you know, decision support committees and invest in, you know, extensive technological solutions. So, you know, in, in light of thinking about the recommendations that will come out of this work group, how much are you thinking about um, making sure that we have a set of recommendations that can be, you know, relatively easily translatable, even to folks without uh, as big a resource pool. You know, I'll say that that's very important for me. How do we raise all boats in, in the country? And I think part of that is is the partnership itself in terms of partnering with the EHR vendors and the knowledge vendors to, to try to figure out how do we embed as much of our, you know, set of recommendations in those tools as possible so that when a practice does purchase a system, um, they don't need to do a lot of configuration at the local side to manage alerts and, and use them more effectively, but, but that stuff comes with the product that they purchased. So that would be one way to think about it, but I do think it's, uh, it's an important thing to keep in mind. I wanted to suggest one other thing that, that I would love to see us touch on, which is, uh, you know, going beyond firing and override rates to things like effect on clinical quality and safety or, or cost reduction and also more rigorous ways of evaluating effects like randomized trials of decision support. I feel like that's the direction we're building in from this foundation of, uh, of uh, firing and acceptance rates. So Adam, I want to start with you with this one. You know, we talked about the importance of gathering data on the alerts. Uh, for instance, you know, how often they fire, how often they're overridden as sort of the next step beyond, uh, you know, just waiting for someone to complain about an alert. That's sort of the next step in evaluating what the current situation is. What, what can you say about where we go from there then, both in terms of uh, evaluation, but also in terms of, of getting to seeing the effect on outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So firing and acceptance are great measures. They're, they're pretty universal. They allow you to sort of quickly sort your alerts into piles. These are the high firing, low acceptance alerts. I might start with them uh, first, but we're doing decision support to drive improvements in safety, quality, provider and patient experience, or cost effectiveness. And so uh, the next step, I think, really is uh, designing our interventions almost like little clinical trials. So we build a new alert around sepsis. Uh, we don't just measure to see how often it's being fired. We measure to see if we are uh, getting patients uh, antibiotics and fluid support sooner, if we're, we're ordering tests better, if our sepsis mortality goes down. And ideally where we can, we're not just sort of turning it on and seeing what happens. We may randomize the alert so some of our users get it and so some of them don't. And that brings us into a whole universe of equipoise and what's ethical and, and how do we design these things. But uh, this is kind of comfortable territory
uh, from medical research and, and drug trials. And I'd really like to see organizations over time start treating decision support just like they would any other intervention that, that they inject into the healthcare system. That's a great point, and I couldn't agree more. So, I, you know, I want to follow up on that idea about um, broad applicability. And, you know, I guess a component of that is making sure that as we develop recommendations and guidance, that it is, uh, you know, that the, that our intended end users see the value in it and, and why they should take the time to pay attention to it and devote resources to it so that they, um, you know, so that they see some, some improvement. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really critical element of any set of recommendations, recognizing that there, there have been recommendations about clinical decision support for a long period of time, and, and not all of them get implemented. And I think in a time when every healthcare organization is resource constrained, as we are talking here in the middle of July, in the midst of the pandemic, I think trying to make the case that investing in clinical decision support, investing in alert management programs will bring value to the organization is, is really something that should be at the forefront of our minds. And in terms of value, I think it's not just patient safety, of course, that's, that's critically important, but it is also clinician wellness, which has a cost for organizations as well, if that's not attended to, um, and perhaps even you know, lower resource utilization over time if, if the organization has uh, less of a need to manage a lot of stale or outdated alerts, uh, trying to keep some degree of EHR hygiene, or as we say at our shop, EHR wellness, could be a priority that's worth investing in. Okay, Dr. McGreevy, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us today. Learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org, where you'll find past implementation guides, toolkits, and more produced by the Partnership for Health IT Patient Safety. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.